Chapter 5 The Fire Falls Frank, are you really going to the Assembly of God with that boy? They're a strange mob. They speak in tongues. I was sounding an alarm. Yes, I am. That boy's got something you and I have never had, and I'm going to find out what it is. I'll sit by the door, and if anything strange happens, I'll be able to slip out. Odd that I should have been praying for two years that Frank would come back to God, yet here I was, objecting to the church he chose on the basis of hearsay. Well, more than that, it was the mind-closing teaching I'd had against it. Yet no one else had bothered to invite him to any church in the past year. Those critical people who influenced me were probably also filled with prejudice through hearsay. Frank went anyway. He sat by himself near the door as he had planned. A young man slipped in beside him. I'm David Batterham. Is this your first time here? Yes. I'm glad you've come. Do you mind if I sit with you? Frank was glad of the company. He didn't feel so conspicuous. This began a friendship which God would use as a step to rocket him into his future ministry. As the service progressed, the congregation burst into singing in the spirit. Soft cadences sung in tongues and English, rising and falling in unrehearsed melody. Frank had never heard anything like it. It was like a giant pipe organ, he told me later. I knew he was hooked. It could have been otherwise. Pastor Favalora from Australia was speaking out strongly against Freemasonry. Suddenly a man sprang to his feet. With eyes glaring and fists shaking, he plunged straight towards the preacher, shouting all the way. Pastor Favalora pointed straight at the man. Come out of him, you demon, in the name of Jesus, he commanded. The man crashed to the floor as though hit with a flying stone. Silence reigned. In a few seconds, a subdued man scrambled to his feet and apologized to the minister and to the congregation as he returned to his seat. Frank was impressed. This was the way church ought to be. The New Testament church in action. To him it was a thrilling experience. But not to me. If that was the way God worked, why didn't it happen in the Baptist church where I belonged and where I intended staying? Then the thing I feared happened about four weeks later. One Saturday morning, David Badham talked to Frank Houston about his doubts. Frank, if you stop ifing and butting, God will fill you with his spirit, David told him. Why don't you come with me to the Assemblies of God District rally to hear Pastor Bruce Irwin preach? Filling with the spirit indeed, I snorted as they walked out the door. That night, the church was packed with an enthusiastic congregation, but it was the sermon on the wounded hands of Jesus which touched Frank. He knew he needed a touch from those wounded hands. When Bruce made the altar call, Frank's hymn book dropped from his hands. Impelled by an inner force he did not understand, he made his way to the front, determined to touch God as he had never had before. He wasn't quite ready for what happened, aware that many eyes were on him. He longed to edge behind the piano out of sight. Instead, he stood in full view with his mouth wide open, waiting for the tongues he'd been told accompanied the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Suddenly, a voice in front of him said, Shut your mouth. He snapped it shut. Stupid man, how can I speak in tongues with my mouth shut? He thought to himself. Another voice behind him urged him to raise his hands. He did, to chest level. Higher, said the voice. This time they were shorter high. Now everybody would see him. Why couldn't they take him to another room? He closed his eyes. 
Perhaps if he didn't look, no one else would either. If only people would stop shouting in that instant, he determined to stop eating and butting, as David had suggested. Suddenly his fingertips seemed to be gripped by an unseen force which pulled his hands high above his head. His upraised hands acted like an antenna receiving the power of God. He began shouting as loud as the rest. Now totally surrendered to Jesus, the Holy Spirit flooded his being and he burst forth in a language of the Holy Spirit. For three hours he was lost in love and wonder for the Lord. When he opened his eyes again, he stood in a church empty of people, except for the pastor leaning warily on the rostrum, and David slumped in a nearby chair. Where are all the people gone? he asked in amazement. Home to bed. It's one o'clock in the morning, grunted the pastor. Frank and David decided to drive round to the Austins to tell them what had happened. When they heard Frank praising God as he walked up the drive, they climbed out of bed and for another hour they all had a glory time and Frank had another infilling of the spirit. All the way home he continued speaking in tongues. I must stop before I get to the house, he thought. But how? I don't want to stop. Hazel think I'm crazy. Perhaps I can slip into bed without waking her up. At the sound of his step in the bedroom, I switched on the light. Hadn't I been waiting hours for him to come home? Even Pentecostal churches were finished before two o'clock in the morning, weren't they? I knew that what I feared had happened. I need come home like this one night, I grunted, totally ungrateful that God had changed him. If it had happened in the Baptist church, I'd have been happy. I rolled over and left him to enjoy his folly, not caring that Frank had learnt two things that night. No one had asked him to say pip 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 or pop pop pop, nor yet glossalalalala. He would say in later years that all people got was a hip and a pop and a pseudo-baptism. He also discovered that it was not the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. He was, although it was by the Holy Spirit's enabling. The baptism came by faith, not feelings. But with it came a consuming fire burning up the dross, enabling a power to be released, which even I recognized. There was a new joy and self-assurance in his life. It was this which ultimately made me realize the genuineness of the experience. His enthusiasm grated on some of the old Pentecostals. It won't always be like this, they assured him. Well, it's been like that for 30 years. Yesterday's radicals have become today's conservatives, Frank says, now as he looks at some who settle for less than God makes available. Frank spoke in tongues constantly while driving his dry-cleaning van. His spiritual growth was greater than all the previous 15 years put together. He wondered why. It's because he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, evangelist Ray Bloomfield explained some months later, quoting 1 Corinthians 14 verse 4. If you speak in tongues as much as that, you will have much more power than Mount Vesuvius. Another odd thing happened. One Saturday morning, Frank woke up with a strange kind of feeling. I know something, but I don't know what I know, he told me. How can you know something and not know what it is, I queried. I was completely mystified by such apparent stupidity. But David, who had stayed the night with us, had the explanations. When he brought us an early morning cup of tea, Frank told me about the strange feeling he had. David, I feel I know something, but I don't know what I know. How can this be? So you've had one of those experiences. He didn't sound at all surprised. Then you know what I mean. I've had that kind of experience as well. God's given you a revelation, but he's missed your head and hit your heart. If you ask God, he will show you what it is.
Frank saw this as the sure way to solve the mystery. Fervently, he spoke in tongues and prayed. I know what it is, he shouted. Healing is in the atonement. Didn't you know that? David was surprised. He picked up the Bible from the bedside table and turned to Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed, he read to us. The thought is repeated in Matthew 8.17, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sickness, close quote, while Peter repeats the words, quote, By whose stripes we are healed, close quote. David knew all the answers. Although divine healing had been practiced in Pentecostal churches since the beginning of the century, we had never really considered the idea except for that one time in Levine. Certainly, the thought that Jesus died for sickness as well as sin, both of which came with the fall of man, was something totally new. You can accept healing like you accepted salvation, David assured us. David, this is wonderful, but do you think he'd heal me? After years of illness, Frank needed assurance. Well, in Luke 4.40, he healed everyone. That's only one verse. Others declare the same truth, David said. Lord, I've been sick all my life. Now I receive healing like I did salvation on the basis of your word, Frank prayed. A warm glow swept through his body, replacing the physical weaknesses of the past with perfect health. It would be years before he experienced sickness again. The three women who had prayed for their dry cleaner man now pressed him to come to the new church beginning in their district. We want you to meet Ray Bloomfield. What's so great about Ray Bloomfield? David had also spoken about this man. He's the pastor of our new church, an evangelist and a wonderful Bible teacher. You'd love him. Frank wasn't interested in meeting Ray Bloomfield. He imagined some preacher trying to establish a church in his old age. The women also told Ray about the former Salvation Army officer they'd been witnessing to. You should meet him, Ray. He's on fire for God. Ray wasn't interested in meeting a broken-down Salvation Army officer. They came face-to-face at a sing-song at Marion Austin's home. Two shocked men looking at each other. Frank was 30, and Ray even younger. Ray's love for people and his ability to communicate immediately impressed Frank, and he found himself wanting to hear this man preach. David, I want to go with you to Ellerslie. I'll meet you at the hall Sunday night. David was delighted. Frank expected by the way the people were talking there would be a crowd. There were six beside himself. Ray preached as though there were five hundred. This man's got power, Frank decided, as he drank in every word of the message. He felt he had never heard such fantastic preaching. When the meeting was over, he counted it a privilege to shake Ray's hand. Instantly they were drawn to each other in a kind of Jonathan and David relationship. This meeting created a furore in my well-planned existence. For from then on, Frank decided to travel an extra four miles to the Ellerslie Tamaki Faith Mission each Sunday. No way was I going with him. He would drop the children and meet up at the Baptist Church and pick us up on his way home. It, well, it worked well for two Sundays, but on the third I walked the street for an hour waiting. Where was the man? What on earth could they be doing in church for over two hours? The children quarrelled and every step I took as I paced up and down made me angrier until I had successfully dispersed all the blessing I had received in the service. At 1.30pm, the A40 came flying along the street. 
I made up my mind that some things had to be sorted out, and I would see they were. Frank's blessing lasted longer than mine, and he was so apologetic that I decided to wait for another day. Meantime, God intervened. So did the children, who wanted to go to church with Daddy. You are creating a divided household, God told me. What do you plan to do about it? What do you want me to do about it? Go with Frank. The impressions were real, but not to my liking. After a brief spiritual struggle, I bowed to God's will. Although the children were delighted, Frank queried my decision. He won't like it, he told me. How do you know when I haven't been? He was right. I didn't like it. Nothing suited my conservatism. Why would God speak through a message in tongues and interpretation when he could just as easily have spoken without the tongues? All this arm-raising was unnecessary. Unfortunately, the children loved it. I decided the only one thing about that church was the sincerity of the people. This made me prepared to go another Sunday. My reaction was not much better. As Ray Bloomfield shook hands with me after the service, he sprang a question on me which I found difficult to answer. Have you been filled with the Holy Ghost? He asked me. Yes, I replied, remembering that I had asked God about it that time in Bible College. How did you know? Did you speak in tongues? Goodness, no. But if I asked God to fill me with his Holy Spirit... He would, wouldn't he? Frank stood by the door watching. He suspected what our conversation was about and decided this would put me off for good. We didn't discuss the matter, but I determined to show that pastor he was wrong. Monday was the first opportunity to search the scriptures. My list of verses and questions was quite lengthy, but they were never asked. Tommy Hicks, an American evangelist, was due to speak in our city, and I had promised to go. There had been exciting reports of wonderful miracles in his Wellington meetings. In fact, Henry and Norma Smith from the mission had taken their four-month-old Down syndrome baby to that crusade. They claimed that his deafness had been healed and his general condition was improved. The child could certainly hear. All this I reported to my neighbour, who had an epileptic daughter. Why don't you bring Maria to the Tommy Hicks meeting, I asked, even though I really didn't believe the reports myself. Try anything in a desperate situation was my attitude. In fact, I was creating a whirlpool which would suck me into the very thing I wanted to avoid. Hazel, you'll have to stand with me if I go to that meeting. She was most definite. Light pierced my darkness. How could I stand with anyone when I didn't believe? Frank, I've decided not to go to that meeting. His smile vanished. Why ever not? I decided to soften the blow. Something would have to happen to me before I could go. A few moments later, he disappeared, only to return with the information that Ray was coming over to pray for me to receive the baptism. I was trapped with no way out. Ray turned the pages of the Bible from the Gospel of John to Acts, showing me the basis for this belief. He was getting to me with his arguments. Perhaps I had been wrong all the time. Ray turned back to Matthew 7, verse 9 to 10. Quote, what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, he will give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? Close quote. Surely, Hazel, we can trust our Heavenly Father to give good things to them who ask. And if we ask for the Holy Spirit, would God give us anything else? Of course he wouldn't. I was certain of that. Did the man think I was completely faithless? 
Well, why don't you let me pray for you? That at least could do no harm. At the crisis moment, the room was plunged into darkness by a power failure, necessitating a search for candles. In a flickering light, I knelt by a chair, thinking as I did, what if nothing happens? But it did. Strange syllables tumbled from my lips as the Holy Spirit was released in my soul. That same light as I had experienced when I was baptized in water glowed around me. Softly and gently, the Spirit had come. My experience was so different from Frank's. The next day I sipped tea and read the Bible instead of the usual women's magazine. It lived in a way it never had before. There were times when scoffers told us the experience was of the devil. Why then, Frank wanted to know, did it make us love Jesus more? Ah, no. We were never at the mercy of the fellow who had nothing more than an argument. A new life had begun for both of us. Frank knew we had touched divine principles which could operate in our own ministry. Still, God had much to teach us. There was the matter of a new pair of shoes. Dear Lord, I do need some new shoes. You see the holes in the ones I'm wearing. Lord, they're not very comfortable with the cardboard over the holes. Please make it possible for me to get a new pair. Frank's prayer was sincere. He needed new shoes for a while, but there was no money to buy any. When he went visiting, he was always careful to sit with his feet flat on the floor to avoid the embarrassment of people knowing he couldn't afford new shoes. One day, when he'd been visiting the Nelsons, he forgot about the holes. As he was leaving, he jumped a low fence, displaying fully the soles of his shoes with those awful holes. Betty, did you notice Frank's shoes? I feel the Lord would have give us him a new pair, Dick said to his wife after Frank had left. The new shoes came as a gift from God, making it easier to have faith for a new suit. Again, Frank prayed, Lord, thank you for the new shoes. Now your servant needs a new suit. Those shiny patches on the one I'm wearing do you no honour. Once more, the Nelsons were listening to God. By the perfection of their timing, they could have been listening to Frank. Next time he called to see them, Dick took Frank inside. Frank, while I was going through my wardrobe, the Lord impressed on me to give you this new suit. See if it fits you. Frank slipped into it. He checked the length of the sleeves and trousers exactly right. Our faith grew by inches. Then came a small hiccup in the journey of faith. Dick phoned. Will you come and pray for Betty? She's sick. Frank didn't ask what was wrong. He simply prayed in tongues all the way to the Nelsons. He strode into the sick woman's room, determined to do battle with the devil. Placing his hands on Betty's head, he prayed fervently. I command you, devil, to come out in the name of Jesus. Leave this body and let it be whole. Come out in Jesus' name, he reiterated. I was horrified at this prayer. Frank hadn't waited to ask the problem, but Dick had told me. Lord, unscramble that prayer. You know that Betty is threatened with a miscarriage, I counted. What a good thing God is wiser than his servants. The learning experience continued in prayer, and spiritual gifts as Frank absorbed all that Ray said and did. In prayer meetings, Frank would kneel as close to Ray as possible so that he might experience the gushings of Ray's tongues. <clears throat> it seems like a fountain had burst within flooding his spirit until he overflowed in an unbelievable torrent of prayer. Frank yearned for a similar experience. One day, when I was out, he shut himself away, determined to touch God. Lord, I want to be able to pray like Ray Bloomfield does.
Suddenly a similar spring broke within Frank, bringing those same gushings of the spirit. He was afraid it'd come home, breaking the wonder of it, but time proved it was not so easily lost. God dropped him from the heavenlies to earth when Ray took him to the next prayer meeting. In 1956, these meetings were held in the home of Ray's in-laws. Brother and Sister Harrison's room was packed with saints who knew how to pray in the Holy Ghost. As it reached its peak, Frank experienced a welling up of tongues such as he hadn't known before. This must be a tongues message God wants me to give the saints, he thought. He gave the utterance loud and clear. Wally interpreted immediately. Without warning, the gathering erupted into laughter. It rolled on and on while Frank became more and more embarrassed. Why were these people laughing at him? The hurt thrust him into a quietness which Ray noticed as they drove home. Frank, what's wrong? he queried. Ray, why did everybody laugh at me tonight when I brought that tongues message? Ray burst out laughing again. Frank, we weren't laughing at you. That was holy ghost laughter. Holy ghost laughter? Frank had never heard of such a thing. And I allowed myself to get upset? It was a hard lesson. But now the meetings were beginning to grow as Ray continued to preach as though to thousands. He ministered to people in faith, seeing them saved, healed and filled with the Holy Spirit as well as set free from demons. Frank watched and listened, for he felt this was the New Testament church continuing in the 1950s. Within six weeks of the church's beginning, Ray asked Frank to preach on Sunday morning. It was good to be preaching again. Frank had a new sense of purpose, especially as he remembered he had been told he'd never preach again. After the service, Ray put his arms around Frank. You'll do. I would like you to be my associate pastor. When Ray made this unorthodox approach, Frank asked what he had to do to sign. Ray smiled. Brother Frank, God has a wonderful record book in heaven. That's all we need. He never did sign anything, but on the spot he became an Assemblies of God minister. This was eventually ratified by the Executive Council, and two years later they discovered he was not even a member of the Assemblies of God. Frank often said a piece of paper didn't make a minister, although he does not recommend this unorthodox approach. The New Year's didn't greatly excite me, as I was still struggling with aspects of Pentecostalism. If someone fell on the floor under the power of the Spirit, I'd do anything to walk away from the embarrassing situation. The day it happened to Frank, I made my escape from the meeting using the children as my excuse so that no one guessed the real reason for my departure. Honestly, God, what is all this about? I hate it. Why did you bring me out of the Baptist church into this? Can't you make these people and Frank quit this behavior? It was a long time before God answered, and then it wasn't the way I expected. In the meantime, Frank and Ray had embarked on a great adventure, meeting in supernatural realms, uncommon in New Zealand at that time. Prayer lines grew longer as the size of the meetings increased. A thousand decision cards were assigned in the first six months. On any one night, there were never less than 30 decisions. No one was refused the laying on of hands, so the length of the meetings also increased. But people were, were so involved, they didn't care. Chartered buses brought people from all over the city. They were determined to come to where there was life. Deliverance was not a debate then. It was a means by which people were set free in Jesus' name. The numbers in the prayer lines precluded any lengthy discussions or asking demons to declare their names. There was no time to pray for people more than once. The command was simple. Demon, I command you, come out in Jesus' name. 
prayer was offered with one eye on heaven and the other on the subject of the prayer, for reactions could be sudden and surprising. Occasionally, if the men were not quick enough at sidestepping, they'd be sent sprawling by the gentlest person. They learned to stand beside people, not in front of them. Frank stood goggle-eyed when he saw goiters vanish, arthritics walking, and all manner of sicknesses being healed. Ray always had Frank help him on altar calls. Occasionally he would say, You pray for this one, Brother Frank. One Sunday afternoon, while Frank thought about his own ministry, he found himself praying, Lord, if you would have me enter this kind of ministry, then allow a miracle to take place under my hands in the service tonight. The only hill miracle seemed so long ago. In the excitement of the meeting, Frank forgot his prayer. The crowd was so large that the prayer lines were stretched down each aisle. While Ray prayed for the people in one line, Frank moved towards a 14-year-old boy in the other. <laughs> what do you want God to do for you tonight? he asked. I have a collapsed lung through tuberculosis, he said. This seemed too big for Frank to handle. Um, Brother Bert Bloomfield will be, will be along soon. You just pray and uh, wait for him. As Frank turned to walk away, the Holy Spirit said, What about your prayer this afternoon? Immediately he turned back to the boy, laying hands on his head while he prayed that God would heal him. There was a hissing as the boy's lungs filled with air. Two weeks later he returned to playing football with a new lung, a miracle documented by the Green Lane Hospital. News of what was happening spread throughout the city. Christians accused the men of fanaticism, wildfire. Better a little wildfire than no fire at all, Ray declared. We were to repeat those words many times to our critics, but when the power of God in the meetings could be felt outside, drawing people in, why should we complain? One such instance involved a boy on his way to commit murder. As Al Fury was passing the hall, the singing drew him in to the door. All he noticed was a halo of golden light around Jack Cassidy's head. Jack, a keen young Christian, was unaware of the light, although it stayed through the sermon and then disappeared. Such an unusual sight made Al want to come back. When he did, he found a double cure for a double curse, as he declared when he became a preacher. He needed a cure for sin, his brother Denny for sickness. Such was the power of God as he used Ray to bring revival to New Zealand in a way that had not been seen since Smith Wigglesworth's meetings. God's me- five, four, three, two. God's method for reaching the world is people, and no one else in New Zealand could have influenced Frank as Ray did. End of chapter five.